Our second lesson is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. I'm going to go back to verse 1 of the chapter. You will remember that Elijah burst suddenly upon the scene in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And in chapter 18, there is a great duel that takes place on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah had prayed to God, and God's great power had prevailed, and an offering which Elijah had offered was consumed by fire in a mighty demonstration of the power of God. And then the prophets of Baal were slain, and so the word will now come from the wicked king Ahab to his wicked queen Jezebel of what Elijah had done. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, Elijah went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink. And he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him again, saying, What doest thou here? Elijah. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Not long ago, I clipped out a 
article from a book I was reading. It was very startling. It told about how a man who was 55 years of age and whose name was Jack Verm had reached the very depths of despair and depression. He was on the beach, literally and figuratively. He was broken and discouraged. He had failed in business, and he was just killing time walking along the beach between job interviews out in California. As he plowed through the sand, one day his eyes fell upon a bottle half hidden by the sand. It appeared that something was in it. He kicked it with his foot, then stooped down and picked the bottle up. He saw that there was a note curled up inside, and so he broke it. He read the note, and this is what it said. Quote, to avoid confusion, I leave my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this bottle and to my attorney, Barry Cohen, share and share alike, Daisy Alexander, June the 20th, 1937. Well, the name Daisy Alexander did not mean anything to Jack Verm, and he passed it off as some sort of joke. He didn't have anything else to do, so he began to look into it, and he finally learned that Daisy Alexander was indeed the heiress to the vast Singer sewing machine fortune. He also learned that if he could prove the validity of the note, that he would be entitled to half of the $12 million fortune which she left. Research revealed that Daisy Singer Alexander was an eccentric person who lived in England, who bemused herself by taking bottles and putting notes in them and putting them in the Thames River and wondering where they would go. And so, Jack Verm filed his claim with his attorneys in court. As the claim began to work its way through the courts and the complicated procedures, they had expert testimony to come and reveal how ocean currents could uh, take a bottle that had been dropped in the Thames River, wash it out into the English Channel, then to the North Sea, then through the Bering Straits into the North Pacific, and either wash it up on the shore of California or Mexico. The scientists estimated that it would take approximately 12 years for this to happen. In actuality, it took 11 and a quarter years and Jack Verm found himself a fortune in a bottle. That's an interesting story, but there's a far greater fortune for every believer who finds himself discouraged when he realizes that the people of God often were beset by Satan with moods of discouragement. One of my friends spoke to me recently about two men in the Bible. He asked me the question, what two men wished that they were dead because of the great pressures that came to bear upon them. Moses, of course, was one of the two. He had asked God even to blot his name out of the book of life if he would not save the people of Israel. God knew how to deal with Moses. And he took Moses, who, while he was the meekest of men, also had a temperament 
that caused him to grow so angry that he cast down the tables of the law and break them in pieces and thus forfeited his right to enter into the promised land and only was one of those to see it. The second of those two was Elijah, the prophet about whom we have just read in the 19th chapter of the book of 1 Kings. Elijah also wished to die. He wished to die because he thought God's plan was failing. And when you look at Elijah and you think about him in the pages of Scripture, you can find a, a number of other servants of God who often felt this way. People are always talking about the patience of Job, but no one ever seems to point out that while Job did have great patience, he complained more than anyone else in the Bible. We talk about Jeremiah, who was the weeping prophet who wished he had never been born. We can come over into the pages of the New Testament and see John the Baptist, who was the New Testament version of Elijah. John the Baptist sending word to Jesus, asking the question, Are you the one to come, or are we to look for someone else? He was disappointed in Jesus. And an old country preacher friend that I know always points out that when John said his worst about Jesus, Jesus said his best about John. Because John, who had been put in prison, because his conscience caused him to point out to a wicked king named Herod the adultery and sin in which that king was living, and later, he was beheaded for his faithfulness in preaching the truth. Jesus said, of those that have been born of women, there hath not been born a greater than John the Baptist. Jesus admired John, and he dealt gently with him. And even the apostle Paul, on one occasion, when he wrestled with the thought of his kinsmen after the flesh, and had pointed out that he was a Hebrew born and bred, that he was zealous for the law, but that no one would ever be saved just by the keeping of the law because they could not do it, that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to Calvary where atonement would be made. That same Paul said that he could wish himself accursed if by his being damned, that damnation could lead to the salvation of Israel. But Paul couldn't do that, and neither can we. The only one who could do that was Jesus, the Son of God, who trod the winepress alone. And it is not for nothing that when you study the scriptures, you find people drawing an analogy between Jesus and Elijah. In fact, one day, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 16, 31, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the sons of men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some of them say that you are Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, why would they say that? Perhaps they had seen something in the personality of our Lord that reminded them of this fiery prophet of God, Elijah. 
And do you remember when Jesus was nailed to a cross? And in that moment of desolation and loneliness and agony, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And those who were seated at the foot of the cross said he is calling for Elijah. Or do you remember that before his decease, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah. Moses, the one who went into the same mountain that Elijah went to and received the Ten Commandments of God. Moses, the author of the law. And Elijah, the greatest of the prophets appeared and conversed with Jesus concerning his decease, which was to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Well, the Bible tells us that Elijah was a Tishbite, but we're none the wiser for that because no one knows where Tishbe was. All that we know is that Elijah means God is Jehovah. So maybe there was something in the parents of this strange figure who comes so suddenly upon the scene that had implanted within him the faith that Mo Moses had implanted in the people of God. What a solitary figure Elijah is, lonely, living out in the waste places of the desert. He comes on the scene at a time in which the people of God have fallen into great evil. The kingdom is split in twain. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And Elijah comes to this northern kingdom and here he appears before one whose name is Ahab. One who had married a Phoenician tigress, an evil, wicked woman by the name of Jezebel, whose name for all of history is synonymous with evil. Jezebel was a great missionary for Baal worship. And Baal worship was evil beyond verbal description. Jezebel not only sought to perpetuate her faith, but she sought to destroy every single believer in the true and the living God, Jehovah. She made it her business to root out and to destroy every single person who believed in Jehovah. There was a man who was a minister of state whose name was Obadiah. Because he worked in close proximity with Ahab, he was able to secretly hide a hundred of the prophets of Jehovah. And yet Elijah seems not to have even known about them. And we know that he does not know about another 7,000 that never bowed their knee to Baal. This tells us something of the fact that he was a lonely man. And when these people in the midst of great evil and in the midst of great anarchy 
need most a visitation from God, in their great crisis, God brings a man, a man out of obscurity, who one day appears in the presence of Ahab and tells him that there will come a drought upon the land because of the evil that is in it, and that there will be neither dew nor rain in the land until God gives the word through him. Immediately Ahab puts a price on Elijah's head and determines that he will have him hunted down and killed. You all know the story of how Elijah went to Cherith, where there was a brook, and he hid, and the ravens came and fed him, and how he drank from the brook water, and he hid out. And then the sun began to beat down, and the searing heat of the desert caused the grass to burn. And all of the life-giving nourishment of the earth shrivels. And Ahab becomes only more furious, thinking if he can only find this prophet Elijah and kill him, that things would be all right. One day Elijah does indeed appear before Obadiah. And when he appears before him, he tells him to go back and tell Ahab that he is now ready for a confrontation. Obadiah says, I know you. You're a strange one. If I go back and tell Ahab that I have seen you, the Spirit of God may catch you away and take you off someplace. And then Ahab will have me put to death because I've seen you and yet have not kept you. But nonetheless, Elijah t tells Obadiah this and Obadiah obeys. And then that great scene at Mount Carmel takes place where what Peter Marshall used to call the duel of prayer at 40 paces, where Elijah beckons the prophets of Baal to take a bullock and slay it and place it upon wood and call upon Baal to send down fire and consume that sacrifice. And here there is a great deal of irony and even humor in this strange, ascetic man from the desert. For he watches them from the early morning when the 450 prophets of Baal begin to cry out, O oh, Baal, hear us! O oh, Baal, hear us! Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility. Baal was to be the one who would send abundance of rain. Elijah had said, Let the God who answers by fire be God. And so the Baal worshippers call from morning till noon, but nothing happens. And then at noon, Elijah begins to mock them. And Elijah says, call louder to Baal. Maybe he's in deep thought, and he can't hear you. Maybe he's off on a journey visiting someone. Call him back. And he makes fun of them. And then finally, when the evening has come, and after these people have worked themselves into a frenzy and lacerated their bodies by cutting themselves with knives, Elijah calmly and quietly comes forward and builds an altar out of 12 stones representing the united 12 tribes of Israel. 
He places the wood and the bullock thereon and commands that water be poured on a first time, a second time, and a third time until the sacrifice is thoroughly drenched. And then he calls upon God to answer by fire. And a bolt of lightning from God strikes that sacrifice and consumes it with fire and licks up the water in the trough. And then Elijah demands that the evil prophets of Baal be slain. Why is it that this man who is so courageous at this point will now run for his life when Jezebel sends word to him that she is going to put him to death. It had just been the moment of the greatest victory in his whole life. And it's always right after a great victory that we had best be ready for what might well be the great defeat. Think about the last election for President of the United States and the greatest landslide vote and then a president who has to resign in ignominy. Here, Elijah hears that Jezebel is seeking for him, and so he runs. He runs as fast as he can go because he is emotionally drained. He is nervously exhausted. And he runs as fast as he can get himself away from wherever Jezebel might find him. He leaves his servant and goes even further into the wilderness until he comes to what we call a juniper tree, offering its meager shadow. And there he cries out to God, let me die. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. And they did not listen. The people did not listen to them. And a very human angel comes. The word angel is a messenger, a messenger of God. And the angel comes and brings to him something to eat and builds a fire and gives him a cruise of water to drink. A lot of people talk about the influence of the mind over the body. But let me tell you, the body has a lot of influence over the mind. When you're not feeling well, you can certainly become discouraged and distracted through day after day of pain or through mental anguish. Well, anyway, Elijah is visited by an angel of God who tenderly tells him to eat and to drink and to take his rest and to sleep. And after he has slept, he wakes up again, again with his complaint, and the angel again tells him to eat and drink and sleep. And after this takes place, this person, Elijah, goes to the place we want to think about. This place is Mount Horeb, the same name for Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments, and he goes into a cave there. And he begins to complain again that he alone is faithful to God. And then what is called in theological terms a theophany takes place. 
He has, first of all, a visitation of an angel. The other day I heard Ben Hayden on the radio telling about how in his church at the Key Biscayne Presbyterian Church, uh, a member of his church was engaged to, uh, to a young man who was not a believer. Ben had advised her not to marry him until he became a believer in Christ. And because she was a faithful Christian, she would not marry him. The man suddenly, after having been talked to by Ben again and again, came to Ben Hayden one day and said at last he was ready to accept Christ as his Savior and Lord. He had never been willing to before. And Ben wondered why, and so he asked him. And the man told Ben Hayden, he said, you know, it's strange. But he said, I was in a bar, one of those dark bars. And I went over to use a telephone. And he said, a strange-looking Jesus freak came in off the street and said, buddy, you got a match? He said, I gave him a match. He said he struck the match, and it lighted up his face, and then he blew it out. And he said, light is come into the world, and the light is greater than darkness, and went away. And he said, I wondered if he was an angel, if he was visiting me to tell me something about God, but it got hold of him. I never saw him before and never saw him after. But he came to Ben Hayden, the preacher, and confessed his faith in Christ and became a Christian. At this place in Mount Horeb in the cave, there comes this visitation from God. The earthquake and the wind and the fire. Well, an earthquake may speak about war, upheaval. Turmoil. What happens after a war like Vietnam? There is a great deal of upheaval that has taken place in the land. After the earthquake comes the wind. That earthquake had shaken the earth. And it had reeled and rocked beneath Elijah's feet. But God was not in the earthquake. And then the wind came, a cyclone, a tornado, a hurricane force, taking gigantic boulders and wrenching them out of their sockets and casting them down the sides of the mountains. An awesome and frightening sight. We have a saying that they who sow to the wind shall reap the whirlwind. This speaks of anarchy. And we see a great deal of this in the land today, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. God is teaching a lesson through the earthquake and through the wind. And then there comes the fire. Evidently some tremendous manifestation of fearful lightning that scathed and scorched and burned the earth. But God was not in the fire. And then there comes the still, small voice. And this is like Elijah's Pentecost. 
This is like the visitation of the Holy Spirit himself speaking into his heart and telling Elijah how God works. God works in all of these things that have taken place. And indeed, earthquake, wind, and fire are almost bound up in Elijah himself. It's almost like an autobiography of himself. And the purpose is to reveal to him that while God works through these other things, he also works through the still, small voice, that silent voice that speaks to him and presses home the claims of God upon his heart. What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Why are you cast down? Why are you so discouraged? There is an old legend that once Satan had a great sale of all of the instruments that he used to destroy the souls of men. And when they came and looked at the instruments, there was one strange-looking tool that had over it not for sale. And so some angel asked Satan, why do you have not for sale on this instrument? And Satan said, that particular tool is discouragement. And I cannot sell that one. Because if I can only crook my way into a man's heart and discourage him, I can bring in all kinds of evil to follow. Now what is the Holy Spirit to do but to come to us and to assure us as the comforter, as the one who walks by our side, and to speak to us of what God can do in transforming and empowering and in strengthening our lives and in giving us the authority of God to go forward in life. God's voice speaks to Elijah, telling him he is to go and anoint Hazael as king over Syria. He is to go and anoint Jehu as a king. He is to go and find a plowboy named Elisha and to start a school of the prophets. And then one day, Elijah himself will be taken away from the earth in a chariot of fire, and his successor will be Elisha. What a remarkable, incredible figure Elijah is. Brave and daring and courageous. And yet a man, as James tells us, subject to like passions such as we are. And yet God heard his prayer, and God answered him in his time of need. Phil Gwaltney asked me last summer if I would repeat for a group of campers a story which I like very much. And I'd like to close with it today because it shows something about what can happen inside an individual's heart. As most of you know, I'm a great sports buff. And as I grow older, I find myself enjoying sports more. And I think the reason is that I can't play sports as well as I used to, and so I enjoy watching other people play 
and I sort of live through them as I see them play. Well, I used to run track. And out in Texas, I ran one leg of the mile relay team, and I ran for our track team the 880, 880 yards. That's a half mile. I'll never forget my introduction to this race. I had a fine old coach by the name of Paul Lively who coached track. And Paul Lively, when I asked him, I said, Coach, how do you run this particular race? And he said, okay, Thielman, when the starter's gun cracks, you come off the blocks as fast as you can go. And when you get to the first bin, you go faster all the rest of the way, and you'll win. <laughs> well, the 880 was a fearsome race, and it really took a lot out of you, but I enjoyed it. And so when I read about Ogmandino, who was a great track coach up in New England, and how he put a little college in Maine, Fairfield College, on the map, Ogmandino had put together an incredible team up in New England. Their team had won every single meet that they had gotten into, and finally they had worked themselves into a place in the New England Intercollegiate Championship track meet. That's a tremendous meet. Little Fairfield College sent its athletes from Maine down to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there they got into a stadium that was crammed full of 60,000 people. And they were watching teams like Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and Boston University and Amherst and Wesleyan. They were all there. And there was little Fairfield to compete. Well, Fairfield did very well. It tied Yale, and it got into the last event of the meet, which was to decide the championship of the meet. And the championship really hung on who, ran, who won the one-mile race. Now, the mile race is a hard race. It is a grueling, torturous event. And it used to be that anyone who could run the mile in four minutes was a world champion. And back in that time, any collegiate young man who could run it in times just a little over four minutes was considered great. Since then, all the records have been broken and it's come down. Well, the Fairfield coach had two milers who were tremendous. They were great strapping young men who were well over six feet tall. They ran like a picture with gigantic strides. And so Ogmandino felt very well when he could put his milers into that race. But he knew that they had to beat Yale and they had to beat Harvard and Yale had the best man. And when he went over to find his two milers, he saw them stretched out on the grass with their faces almost as green as the grass because they had eaten something that had food poisoned them. And he realized that he was not going to be able to run either one of them in the track meet. Well, he had a kid on his team whose name was Tommy. Tommy had gone out for track his freshman year, his sophomore year, his junior year, and this was his senior year. The coach had simply taken him down to the meet because he was one of those incredible little people who had such hustle and pepper and spirit that he cheered up all the rest of the athletes. But Coach Mandino said that he really couldn't run. He said it was just pitiful, that he almost waddled. 
that the best time that he'd ever run the mile was four minutes and 30 seconds. And that wouldn't do at all. But when he saw his two star milers were out, he had no chance but to put Tommy in. And so he went over to Tommy. He saw him, and he said, Tommy, you're going to have to represent us. You're going to have to run the mile. Our two other milers are sick. You're the only thing we've got to compete, and you've got to run. Well, Tommy looked like he'd been run over by a truck because he couldn't think about competing with the fast men in these other big league schools. But he went out to the starting blocks, and when the starter's gun cracked, Tommy came off the blocks, and the coach looked at his horrible form and turned away in embarrassment. And he thought, how could I do that to that kid? 60,000 people will be laughing at him, and I've embarrassed him to death. And while the coach was actually looking the other way, he began to hear the other teammates yell, look at Tommy run, look at him. And so Ogmandino turned around, and to his utter astonishment, Tommy had breasted up close to the Yale man and passed him and passed the Harvard man and broke the tape and won the race and 60,000 fans went into pandemonium. They couldn't even find the kid's name on the program. <laughs> well, after it was all over and they were in the uh, dressing room, the coach came and he did like coaches would and the players all grabbed Tommy and they hugged him and the coach tussled his hair and he hugged Tommy and he said, Tommy, you really want it for me, boy. You want it for us. You put old Fairfield over the mark. And Tommy looked back at him, breathing heavy and with sobs, crying as an athlete does when he's exhausted. And he said, Coach, I didn't win that for you. And I didn't win it for Fairfield. He said, I won that one for my dad. He said, I never told you this, but my dad came home from World War II crippled. He never would be able to walk again. My daddy always wanted me to run track, and I went out for it just to please him. And he said, today, I received a telegram. My sister had been trying to reach me by telephone, but couldn't contact me. And she said that dad had just died. And so today, I ran this race for my dad. Tommy had prayed in the presence of Ogmandino. He had prayed in the presence of his teammates. And he realized a power that came from God and gave him a boost when he needed it the most. And this is a lesson that God brings to us in times of discouragement, that he speaks to our hearts and that he is willing to strengthen us. And if an athlete can do that, to win an earthly prize that fades away, then how much more shall we who follow Jesus stick in the fight, knowing that the Holy Spirit and the great host of angels and those who have gone on before us are cheering us from heaven and the race of our faith? Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast presented us in the Bible with flesh and blood and bone, 
with men and women who are like we are, but who, because they were willing to be submissive to thy will, thou didst undergird them and make them courageous. And so today we bless thee for thy servant Elijah. We thank thee for his boldness. We thank thee for his courage. We thank thee for his willingness to be expendable in the cause of righteousness. We thank thee for that one who was like unto him in the New Testament, for John the Baptist. And if all of these great men went through periods of discouragement, and yet thou didst bring them through, then we know that these things are put in the Bible to encourage our hearts and make us to know that you will lead us to something better too. And so will you take now all of those feelings of frustration and sadness that beset us and help us to lay them at the feet of Jesus, who is the one who started us in the race of faith and the one who will finish us in the race of faith. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.